So without further ado, let's jump into that. This sermon is going to be about no one greater. And of course, I know uh, you should all know who I'm talking about. But here's how we're going to start this. Again, unique. We can do this differently than we normally do it in a, in, a, in a physical setting. So here's what I want you to do. The very first thing that we're going to do right now is together, I'm going to have you open up your Bibles and read Colossians chapter 1. Go ahead and do that right now. I'll give you about two minutes to do that. Read Colossians chapter 1, and you want to read it with an eye for the context. Who's Paul writing to? Why is he writing? At least as much as you can see. And what's he talking about as we jump into our specific text? Colossians chapter 1, you have about two minutes. Ready, go. about 10 or 15 more seconds. So what you notice in Colossians chapter one is that Paul is writing to the, the people of Colossae. And, and what we're jumping into this morning is a, is a prayer that Paul has for them. In his prayer, he's now trying to say, uh, I'm praying for you. I want the well-being for your, uh, for your soul. And I'm wanting, as I'm praying for you, I'm thinking about the work that Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Colossians is really talking about the supremacy of Christ, who he is and why he is so fundamental 
to our faith, and not just why he's fundamental to our faith, but who he is in his person. Uh, one of the reasons Paul's writing to the Colossians is that they were dealing with a lot of false teaching, and some of that false teaching had to do with Jesus being thought of as a mere man. In fact, Jesus was downgraded, and they upgraded angels in their thinking. They were thinking about angels being the something something that they can go to, that angels had power and authority that perhaps Jesus didn't. And so Paul takes great pains to talk about who Jesus is, which is why this whole series is about Jesus or Christ being supreme. He's supreme in so many ways, and that's some of the things that we're going to look at. In fact, even as we think about the word supreme, what does that mean? Well, according to Google, Supreme it refers to someone of an authority or an office or someone holding it and is superior to all others. Notice that Christ is not a rich cream sauce. That's not the intended meaning I have for this. It's not, I know that you could see that right here. Jesus is not a rich cream sauce. That is not the intention that I have to convey. Just so you know, we're all on the same page. Not a rich cream sauce. In fact, some of you guys know the, of the term Supreme in, in another way, too. It actually, these guys are a brand that make incredible gear. And by incredible, I mean expensive. And by expensive, I, I don't necessarily mean greater quality. They're just people that make more, more stuff, and they put their name on it, and they charge absurd amounts for it. For instance, if you wanted to buy a T-shirt from them, perhaps you wanted to get me a gift, and you wanted to buy me a Supreme T-shirt, you could only pay a, a mere $980. And you might think, well, uh, that's a little outside my price range. I'd rather get Pastor Rod something a little more affordable, to which you might say, maybe I'll get Pastor Rod a brick, which is only $175. <laughs> $175. I don't know why you'd want to buy a Supreme brick, but again, it's the brand that matters. And in case you were concerned about still paying that much, you could still pay only $16 a month if you want to take it on credit. So there you go. You can buy me a brick. Or how about this? If you don't want to get me a brick, Maybe you want to get me something more practical, like a crowbar. You know, on the weekends when I have nothing to do, I might go and use my crowbar to, I don't even know what you use a crowbar for, honestly. <laughs> break chains, break into buildings. Um, those are really the only uses that I know of. But maybe you want to buy me a crowbar, uh, $289. Last sale was 230 so there you go. Or if you want to be really, really, really generous, you might want to get me one of the really sweet Louis Vuitton leather baseball jackets. Uh, and of course, it's a mere $17,500 uh, with the latest sale at $9,000. If you guys want to get me one of those, that'd be fantastic. Um, actually, don't because I would be so uncomfortable. But here's the thing. We're looking at brands like this, and you gotta, you got to realize that one of the reasons people pay for stuff like this is not because it's more qualitative. It's not because it has a necessarily better thread count or more thermal qualities that make it better than the other jackets. It's the brand. And humans have this terrible habit of valuing what is not valuable. We value what is not valuable. And and now what we're going to learn in the book of Colossians is learning to truly value what is really valuable. And that, of course, comes up to who Christ himself is. Our tendency, of course, is to always look at people, places, and things and to value other things as more important to us than Christ. But the staggering passage that we're about to read is going to be one of the primary reasons that Christ needs to be your MVP. In other words, you can't look at Jesus as just another ornament of your life. He's got to take up all of it. His, his taking up of residence in your life as a Christian means that your whole entire life is now wrapped up in all that Jesus is and what he wants you to do. 
Please don't spend $17,000 on a Louis Vuitton Supreme jacket. Instead, invest your life in learning who the supreme ruler of creation is, which of course brings us to Jesus himself. Let's look at Colossians chapter one. We're only looking at a few verses this morning, but these verses are packed and we're gonna go quickly to get through them because there's a lot here that I want you to see. Uh, we're gonna talk about Jesus being preeminent. And, and in fact, if you're looking at your ESV Bible, you might notice that your Bible says the preeminence of Christ at the top of verse 15. That word preeminence, just before we jump into this here, that word preeminence refers to the fact of surpassing all others, superiority. That's another way of saying that Christ is supreme. Christ is top. Christ is the highest, the biggest, the, the, the best of all things, period. So when we talk about preeminence, you're going to see this word come up again in our passage. You've got to realize that what it's referring to, again, is Christ's supremacy, his excellence, his greatness. I like some of those synonyms below that, his, uh, his superiority above all others, his uh, distinction. Those are good things. Okay, so let's look into our passage now. As we, as we jump into this, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God. Who is the he? If you look at verse 14, you'll notice that the, the 14, uh, verse 14 refers to, excuse me, the last part of verse 13, um, his beloved son. So we're talking about the father's son, Jesus, right now. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and, get this, for him. And Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is by far one of the best texts about Jesus. And in fact, I'm going to encourage you this week in one of your small group applications is going to be the challenge of memorizing this section, of knowing what this section says, memorizing it, committing it to heart so that you're able to ponder all that's being said here. We're only going to be able to scratch the surface. So as we jump into verse 15, the first part of verse 15 says he is the image of the invisible God. The very first thing that Paul wants you to know about who Jesus is, is that he is not merely a man. He is, in fact, deity. Point number one, you need to recognize Christ's deity. The fact that he is not a mere mortal. He is not just a really great guy with incredible powers. He is God in the flesh. Now, you have to remember that when Paul is writing this, this is the early 60s. Jesus had just left the scene about 30 years ago, 60 AD. We're talking about this high Christology, this high view of Jesus that is already permeating Christianity. Now, there are people today who will, who will talk about Jesus and say, you know, Jesus isn't really uh, a God. Uh, in fact, uh, when, the Christian, when the Christian church was birthed, they really saw him as a great teacher, but he became God over the course of history. It's kind of like that game of telephone. And as you tell someone one thing, it kind of evolves and becomes a bigger and more impressive, funnier line at the end of it. And that's what happened with Jesus. He started out as this really great teacher, but he became venerated over the course of time. And, and because of that veneration, Jesus became God. And that's what Bart Ehrman's book, How Jesus Became God, was all about. However, the problem with that is that when you look at, yeah, I agree with you, Matt Daniel. When you look at the text like this, you, you have to realize that this is AD 60. 
Uh, Bart Ehrman, one of these uh, scholars who continues to teach against the New Testament, will point to books of the Bible like the Gospel of John, which is written in about 80 or 90 AD. Um, and they'll say, well, see, there you go. The Christian church developed over the course of time, and the Christian church began, began to look at Jesus as just a, a, man, or a man who became God. He became exalted in their view. However, there's problems with that because when you look at the book of Colossians, you see this already, uh, this already well-developed idea of who Jesus is from the very earliest stages. And here's the thing. When you think about Jesus, young person, ask yourself the question. Uh, we're really going to apply the duck test to Jesus. You, know, you guys know what the duck test is? If it swims like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? Uh, it's probably a duck. It doesn't mean that there can't be mistakes made, sure. But when we look at the whole picture of Jesus, we're asking ourselves the question, does Jesus quack like a duck, walk like a duck, talk like a duck, swim like a duck? Of course, we're not talking about ducks at this point. We're talking about deity. So let's apply the duck test to, to Jesus and see if we can find elements of his person that really give us a sense that he's more than a man. Here's three things that you can look at. We're going to go through these pretty rapidly, so I hope you can type fast. The first thing I want to look at is the, 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 the text that we're looking at itself. Jesus as the image of God. Now, pause for a minute and ask yourself if you ever remember God talking about images in the, in the, in the Bible. If you're astute, you might go to Exodus chapter 20, where God said, don't make images. <laughs> Stop. Don't make a graven image. Don't make a likeness of me. Don't make images. And yet, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says that Jesus is the image of God. The word behind image in the Greek is icon, which sounds a lot like icon, because that's where we get it from. Icon, I-C-O-N, and icon, E, well, okay, I don't want to spell it. I don't know how to spell it quickly in Greek, but you get the idea. A, a, icon and icon. Uh, they're meant to convey the fact that Jesus is the one who perfectly represents the Father. And that's a big deal because in the Old Testament, you weren't supposed to make a graven image. You weren't supposed to have any likeness of God. And yet Paul says unabashedly, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Another way to say this, I like how the NLT says it. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That is, Jesus is God made visible to us. This is God's condescension to us, making it clear who he is by putting himself in the body of Jesus. Jesus is now incarnated. He takes on flesh, incarnate. Carne asada, you ever think about that? It's the meaty part. Jesus incarnates himself in order to make deity visible to us. And I love that. So in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, you can also think about the term that Paul uses. He says, Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Uh, John 14, 9, Jesus says to, uh, to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, I am God in the flesh. This is one of those places where it's really hard to mangle this. In fact, one of the people that do mangle this often successfully in the, in the minds of a lot of people are the Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll talk about Jesus being the, the firstborn of creation uh, in the actual literal sense of the term. He was the first one made by God, and then God used him to make all other things. The problem with that is that when you look at this whole passage, verses 15 to 20, you can't really read it that way without mangling the text and, and really contorting it into something that it was never meant to convey. Jesus is the image of God. This is the first thing you ought to look at. But the second thing here is that Jesus forgives sins. Uh, one of the things that Jesus does in Mark chapter 2, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show it to you on your screen real quick. So Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, you see this take place. Jesus saw their faith. He says to the paralyzed man and his, and his friends who are watching, son, your sins are forgiven. 
Verse six, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts saying, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, if you remember when we talked about this months ago, I said that was the right question, but the wrong answer. Look at verse 10. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The idea here was the authority of Christ. Jesus was demonstrating that he was not a mere man. He has authority. Why? Because he's the second person of the Trinity. He had the authority to forgive sins. Daniel chapter 9 verse 9 says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. That's Daniel 9 9. The idea is not foreign in scripture. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus says, I forgive sins. And, and he does that in order to prove his authoritative place. Jesus forgives sins. Ergo, Jesus is God. So we see two elements of Christ's deity on display. The duck test applied. The walking or the quacking like a duck, something like a duck, walking like a duck. So far, we're seeing elements of duck-like activity in the life of Jesus. One other one that you, you might be familiar to you is the concept of Jesus using the term son of man. This is used about 80 some odd times in the Gospels where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, you guys have been, if you've been at Compass a while, you might know that this is a pretty significant designation. In some cases, people think about Jesus using this as a term of humility, like, oh, Jesus is just being humble about who he is. Well, not really. Jesus is alluding to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's that classic text where the prophecy about the coming one. Uh, is that he would be this sovereign ruler. Take a look at it with me here. I saw a vision in the night. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Okay, so the ancient of days, God himself, son of man comes before him. That's where the term comes from. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In this here, you have uh, the Son of Man who is given rulership. He has glory from God, which is a pretty big deal. He has a global kingdom from God, and his rulership is eternal and all-encompassing. This sovereign figure is called the Son of Man. And the reason why is because he would be God in the flesh. This is the coming Messiah, who is also the one that we should be giving our full attention to. Okay, so there's Christ's deity on display. You got to recognize this, apply the duck test, and see that in all of Scripture, and particularly this text, it's abundantly clear who Jesus is. So what? What does that mean for us? Jesus ought to be your life priority, young person. If Jesus truly is the God-man, what does that mean about your life and how you live? and how you go from day to day. That means Jesus needs to be your primary life priority. Doesn't mean you don't do schoolwork, it doesn't mean you don't apply to college and that you don't create a career for yourself, but it does mean that even those things that are part of being an adult or being a, a human, I guess, a flourishing human, it means that Jesus maintains the central role in your life. He is the anchor point, he is the sun, and, and you are the one who, uh, who rotates around him, <laughs> um, you know the word I'm talking about. Jesus is the center of your life. He's the figurehead. Not only should Jesus be your life's priority, but he should also be your, your, your study. If Jesus is God and he's come and his word is, is revealing who he is, that means he, his words and his life ought to be studied by you. 
And what a great opportunity you have right now. The coronavirus has us all at home and all, all of us now are, are, are finding ourselves with a lot of time. The question is, what are you doing with the time that God has given you? Are you studying the life and words of Jesus? Is he your God? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? And if so, is it evident by the way that you're spending your time now that you don't have a busy schedule? Our biggest excuse that we always use is, I'm too busy. I don't have enough time for that. I've got too much homework. My school, uh, my extracurricular, my studies, my, my academic career is so demanding. A lot of that has changed. And I'm telling you, don't waste your time right now by 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 only spending it binging Netflix or by only doing things that are of lesser quality. Make Jesus your life's priority. Study the life and words of Jesus. That was only the first part of verse 15. Let's continue on as we look at the rest of this passage, or at least the middle half of it, 15 all the way through verse 17. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. In heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything, all things were created through him. And I love this phrase here, for him. And he is before all things. And in him, everything, all things hold together. It's abundantly clear that Jesus is God in the scriptures, but it also defines what role he has as deity. We read in Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, what this is telling us now is Jesus created the heavens and the earth. That's what you see there. Paul is alluding to everyone's familiar Genesis account saying, for by him, all things are created in heaven and on earth. Well, you start to say, well, what does that mean then? Jesus must be God. And not, is he, not only is he God, he is the creator God. That ought to humble you and put you in the posture of saying, Jesus, you are the sovereign ruler of creation. You are the Lord. I am the creature. You are the master. I am the servant. So much of us should look at this and say, you are God. And I am so grateful that I get to serve you in this way. And guys, here's the thing. I recognize that for some of you right now, for you seniors, um, you're going to be missing out on some, some of the parts of your life that a lot of people tell you are some of the most memorable and meaningful. And, th and that's true. I understand that for some of you, uh, you're going to be missing out on prom, that desire to ask someone out and to dress up all pretty and drive a limo to wherever is going to be gone. Some of you guys aren't going to be able to graduate in front of your neighbors and friends and your peers. Your parents aren't going to be able to go and see you from the stands and, and wait in the hot blazing sun as you ascend or as you descend into the field. Some of you guys are not going to be able to enjoy grad night where you get to go and hang out with your friends all night at Disneyland or some other theme park. Some of these things are largely probably gone from your life. And I understand how painful that is. And then you start thinking to yourself, well, man, God, why would you let this happen? Why would you allow things like this to take place? And the thing is, when we understand as Jesus as a sovereign ruler over the earth, we have to understand that he is behind everything. The coronavirus is not a surprise to him. Was someone not paying attention to this highly infectious virus that was spreading? Of course not. Jesus was always and fully in control. And what that ought to do for you is give you a greater sense of comfort that Jesus is presently, presently ruling and sustaining all of creation. He not only made it, he made it for himself, and he currently upholds it by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. So this ought to change the way that you see how things like this unfold. I know it's still not better. You're still not going to necessarily walk away and feel like I feel great about this, but it ought to give you a sense of comfort. You ought to realize first and foremost that Jesus himself is not a thing. He's not part of creation. 
I, I'm, I'm referencing several verses here, but um, the one of the things that you're going to study this coming Wednesday together is the concept of Jesus being the firstborn of creation. Again, the Jehovah's Witnesses look at this and say, well, this means that Jesus was the first one created. And I think if you simply read the context, it makes it abundantly clear that Jesus was the creator of all things and therefore cannot be a thing himself. He is not a thing. Um, and it's clear if you simply read the context. He's before all things and in him all things hold together, verse 17 says. Not only that, um, Jesus is not a thing. And as we've already said, Jesus created everything, um, everything. Everything that you see, everything you can touch, visible and invisible, Scripture says, all things were created by Jesus. And yes, I know what some of you guys are already thinking about. That even means that, that God created things that we don't like, like cats. That's still part of God's creation. And I, I guys, let me just say, I struggle to say this. Yeah, Jesus made cats. Okay, let's move on. Jesus created everything. Which means if Jesus made everything, people, let, let me just say this. If Jesus made everything, think about this then. That means we are responsible to care for and respect the creation that he's made. Think about that. People, stuff, our own lives. I mean, if everything is to him and for him and through him, that means everything around us is our responsibility to, to steward for his, for his honor and his glory. Now, think about this. Right now, everyone's pro-life. Government is shut down in order to protect life. Um, and, and that's a good thing in some respects. We want to care for people. We want to love people, and we should. Uh, but think about this. The rest of all of creation, plants and animals and, and the water supply and the air supply, these are things Christians should care about. Yes, we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth, but that doesn't mean we don't care for the earth that God has given us. Some people, you know, we look at PETA or we look at people that are uh, environmentalists who really go to the, the furthest end and they make creation their God. That's not what we do. But that doesn't mean we don't honestly and genuinely care for creation. It doesn't mean we don't honestly care for animals. And even though I joke about cats all the time, I guess cats are okay. Um, animals are cool. I mean, I, I have two bearded dragons in my family room who smell but I still care for them. I still care about them. You should care for the earth. You should have a genuine interest in the water supply and, and a genuine interest in the, in the air quality and things like that, because those things matter. This is God's creation. It would be like us uh, all gathering in your living room, messing it up, kicking stuff over and saying, oh, no big deal. Uh, you're going to get a new house someday anyway. Well, no, it is a big deal because it's mine. <laughs> I would like for you to respect my property. Everything around us is God's property. He made everything, which means we should respect it, care for it, and, and really seek to, to make it flourish. Uh, music, art, science, all these things, uh, these are good things that God has given us. And in fact, um, Jesus creating everything means that really everything around that we see is meant for his honor and his glory. Jesus is the point of every created thing. When you look at your cat, if you like cats, you can praise God in your heart. When you look at your dog and you realize how much better he is than a cat, you can praise God in your heart that he's not a cat. And you can look to Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, for creating dogs, how amazing they are. When you look at your husband or your wife and you realize how beautiful, handsome, godly they are, you can thank God for that person. When you look at anything in all creation that inspires that sense of ah in you, that's when you turn and give thanks to God. Football, tennis, field hockey, 
physics, whatever it is, those are opportunities to turn and give thanks to God. And I love that because people like Tim Tebow popularized the word Tebowing because he would give thanks to God. He would pray to God uh, to the point where it became kind of this mild obsession with the media. They'd look at him and say, this guy is always praying. It's, it's interesting and unique. And I love that because Tim was showing that his life, even though he had fame and fortune and lots of fans and all this stuff going on, he recognized that his life was really not about football. His life, even his football career, was submitted to Christ because it was for his honor and his glory. What a good example that is for us. Wherever God takes some of you guys, if you guys end up at the, the best schools in the country and you end up at some of the top positions of every company, recognize that even there, your life is meant to be lived out for God's honor and glory, and you are merely a steward of his creation. Jesus is the point of every created thing. And furthermore, never forget here that Jesus is, is the sustain. Jesus is the sustaining power behind all things. Uh, you read this in the, in the second part of verse 17, where it says, and in him, Jesus, all things hold together. I love this because it means that scripture says it is the willingness of Jesus that the planets align and that gravity holds us down and that water continues to be satisfying for our bodies because Jesus presently is a willing creation to operate as he desires. I, I read um, this article and I have a, a small clip of it here. Uh, there's this interesting, and I don't know how it works. I'm not, a, a, I'm not a, a scientist. I don't pretend to be one on TV or Zoom meetings, but I love it here because it says the glue that holds the world together. Look at that subtitle there. The most we learn about subatomic, the more, try that again. The most we learn about subatomic particles called gluons, it's misspelled there, particles, I should say, the more the universe seems to be made of nothing at all. Now, my mind gets blown when I think about subatomic particles, but recognize that at some point you get down to the smallest elements of creation and you realize that it looks like really nothing's holding them together. And yet, at the very same time, the Christians can look at that and say, well, it's clear to me that God makes it clear. Jesus is the one who wills that these things stay together. It's not just the magnetism. It's not just the fact that there are natural, uh, natural explanations for why these things work. It's the fact that God, who rules over creation, who is an intellectual God, who is a thoughtful God, puts all of these things together to work in order and in harmony. That is the God that we serve. It doesn't mean that, the, that nature is not with sin and that things aren't broken. We all know that that's true. Uh, but that does put us in a perspective of saying, hey, Jesus, you are the ruler of everything. You're the creator. You're the sovereign. I ought to worship you for that. I ought to serve you for that. I ought to respond with my life toward you in that. And that's exactly why in this next passage here, as we look at verses 18 through 20, you see Paul looking at creation and then looking at the new creation and saying, man, Jesus is Lord, not only over the earth, visible and invisible, but he's also Lord over the new creation, the church. Take a look here with me. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now pause for a second and ask yourself, could the body live without the head? It's a pretty easy question, right? Your body could not live without your head. Most of you. Uh, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's a reference to his resurrection, by the way. That firstborn from the dead is that idea that he died and rose again in the new glorified body. That in everything, he might be preeminent. There's that word, supreme, first, best, highest. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's another verse that makes it clear Jesus is God. 
and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, on whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Not only ought we to worship Christ as a sovereign ruler over creation, but also, as we look at this text here, it's making it clear that Jesus is also sovereign ruler over the church. We ought to submit to him for that. Jesus is the one who leads the church. It's his mission. It's his body. It's his bride. He's the one who died for it, which means as we look at this text, it really humbles us and helps us see that really, if we look at God's church, if we look at God's church and we realize that he is the point of it, Jesus is the point. He's the one that this is all about. If that's true, that means church is not about you. Church is not about you. It's not about me. Um, it's not about having the coolest this, that, or the other. It's not about having the best speaker system, the best musicians, the best anything. Those things matter, to be sure. But that's not what church is about. Uh, because church is not meant to be something that caters to you. It's, it's Christ's organization. It's his bride. It's his, it's his, uh, it's his thing. Something that he died for. Well, and if you think about this young person, all of your life right now, in almost every venue of your life, you have life custom tailored to you. When I was a young person, I had to get a radio and a cassette tape and record music from the radio in order to hear songs I liked. And I don't even know how Ryan D'Amato did this. I don't even know if they had music back then. They probably had drums and rocks, but Ryan couldn't record stuff. Jess Williams couldn't do that. Point is, today, you can hop on uh, Spotify or whatever service you use, and you can listen to any song you want from any era, from any artist, with high quality, and you can listen to it over and over again, and it's tailored. And then once you do that, Spotify says, oh, I like, I, I know what you're listening to now. Let me give you another, you know, artist that you're probably going to like, because this is your world, and I cater it to you. You can do the same thing with what your watching habits are. You can go on YouTube and you watch one video and then it says, here's 50,000 other videos you'll probably like, given the fact that you just watched this one. Back when I was your age, I had to, I, I had to go on, on TV and then watch it when it happened. And if I didn't watch it when it happened, I was up the creek without a paddle. Now, even though you're in your home, you can have everybody delivered to you, whatever you want from any restaurant. And that person is braving the wilderness and braving the, the outside world and the coronavirus and coming to your door, delivering you hot and delicious food from any restaurant you want. When I was your age, we didn't even have restaurants. Okay, I'm kidding. When I was your age, I had to, we had to get in the car and drive somewhere. Let me tell you, the car that we were in was a junker. It was not a nice car, so it was not a pleasant experience. And even then, when we went to the restaurant, it was a very rare occurrence. We were not dirt poor, but we were close to that. We were close to that. We had food stamps and all that. So we didn't have a lot of time to go out to restaurants. And then you look at all the streaming options that you have right now. Everything that you watch, you can, yeah, it can rate it and it, it's delivered to you anytime, any place in high definition, 4K streaming. I mean, just think about all the ways that your world is custom tailored to you. It is so hard, and I don't, I, I feel bad for you for this, but yet this is something you have to be aware of. Your generation is going to struggle so hard to come to church and realize it's not about me. I can't have it the way I want it. 
I may not like the musicians. I may not like the song selections. I may not like how Jesus wants us to always preach the Bible and to always exalt Christ. I may not like that. I may not want that. But the point is, it's not about you, young person. The church is about Jesus, which is why I'm glad you're here on this Zoom, because this is a really good evidence and example that you're understanding that, yeah, I, I, I might rather spend my 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning going to the beach or doing a park thing, but this is important. Because God commands me to submit to his word and to listen to the teachers that he's given to me in order that I might better glorify Christ. And in fact, that's why church should focus your attention on Jesus. If Jesus is the point of the church, and he is, this means that it's, first of all, not about you, and it's all about Jesus. The focus gets shifted from looking at yourself in a mirror to looking at Jesus and glorifying him and, and understanding that my life is now meant to be lived out, worshiping his deity, changing my priorities to make it his, realizing that he is the hero of the story, not me. He's the purpose of the church, not me. This is so humbling because it means that we now have to uh, lower ourselves in order to highlight and lift up and exalt someone else, but rightly so, because Jesus is supreme. He's the one that life is all about. The Old Testament looks forward to Jesus and points to him. The New Testament points at him presently and says, this is what the church is about. Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. It's referring to himself and the gospel. Jesus' priorities should change ours. Jesus' life should change ours. Jesus is the reason, the purpose of the church. Jesus. Christ is supreme. Now, one more thing before you guys go. You might have heard the story of the influencer, the TikTok guy named Lars, who uh, for the Corona challenge licked the toilet seat. You guys heard about that, right? Licked a toilet seat. Surprise, surprise, he got the coronavirus. <laughs> Let me just say, young person, there's better things to do with your time. There's better things for you to do with your life and your time. Uh, you, you need to stop licking the toilet seat of idolatry, okay? This is exactly what we get down to when it comes down to our lives lived apart from Christ. We do crazy things like this. And maybe as a Christian, maybe you did this. Hopefully you did not. I hope you have greater wisdom than this. But this is what life looks like apart from Christ. You're, you're licking the toilet seat of idolatry and saying, look how much fun this is, all the while not realizing that that licking of the toilet seat is going to give you the virus called sin and death, and it's going to destroy your life. Christ is supreme means that when we let Christ be the ruler of our lives, both in creation and in the church, recognizing his deity, that changes then our priorities, that changes the way we perceive disappointment and sadness, like when we lose out on prom or grad night, it changes the way that we handle these lesser issues of life because it puts our attention on what most matters, Christ himself. Christ is supreme because he's God. Christ is supreme as creator. And Christ is supreme as the, new, as the creator of the, of the new creation, the church. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I so enjoyed my time with you. Uh, please, if you have any feedback about today, let me know. I'd love to hear it, ways that it can be better. Uh, but thank you so much for joining me. If you have any questions, I see the, the chat going, but I see anything come through. Have a great morning, and I will see you guys hopefully tomorrow at 11 a.m. at the same link for our DBR chat. You are now free to go. Have a, Oh, no, 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 wait, don't go. Let me pray, and then you can go. Sorry, let me pray. God, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering together over the internet. 
And we're now having plenty of space. Last week we were short, but this week we have plenty of space for, for us and even more to come. So I pray, God, please help us now to make the best use of this time, make the best use of our technology, and Lord, live as though you were supreme because you are. Help us, God, in this coronavirus quarantine time to, to use our time in ways that are pleasing to you. Uh, that doesn't mean, God, we can't watch Netflix or can't spend a lot of time on Hulu or whatever else, God, but it does mean that we should steward our time wisely because the days are evil. Help us to remember that, God. Help us to live for you, to love you, and to live uh, with the banner that Christ is supreme over all of our lives. We thank you so much for his death on the cross, which makes us right with you. We thank you that he has reconciled us to you by, by his own blood on the cross, and we pray, God, that we would live in light of that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.